Isaiah 52, verse 13. We'll read Isaiah 52, 13, and through chapter 53. This is a famous passage from the Old Testament predicting the death and resurrection of Christ. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned to be with wicked men, yet with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Well, this passage is quite clearly a passage describing the person and work of Christ, of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. It's quite clear that that is the case. And this passage was prophesied by Isaiah the prophet 700 years before Jesus actually came into the world. 700 years before he came into the world. Not, it was not something that was said or written after the fact, but before the fact. Before anything had ever, ever happened like this, Jesus was predicted to do these things. These are actual predictions of the future. So this must be 
supernatural. It must be miraculous. It must come from God because only God can make sure that what God predicts through his holy prophet Isaiah will actually come to fruition when God so chooses to bring these things to fruition. It can only be from God. Now, this is the clear declaration of Scripture. In fact, this passage is cited quite often in the New Testament as a a fulfillment, as a prediction and fulfillment of everything that God had announced beforehand through his servant Isaiah the prophet. The New Testament quotes it many times. Jesus also cites it. it. This is a clear messianic prophecy. This has to be said because there are many skeptics. There were many skeptics in ancient times and throughout history and as well today. Many skeptics who say that this passage is actually not about Christ or the Messiah. They say that this passage is about some other person and they have various and assorted ideas as to who this passage is all about. They say this is about Jeremiah or Josiah, the king, or Isaiah himself, or David, or any number of other individuals. They propose these other names because they don't want this passage to be supernaturally revealed revelation about Jesus Christ and the fact that he had to come into the world, he had to die for our sins, to pay for our sins. That would would have been the only thing pleasing to God his father, for his own son to die for our sins. That's what the skeptics do not want to admit all through the centuries. However, there have always been Jewish interpreters in ancient times and throughout history. Even though they don't believe Jesus is the Christ, specifically, they actually do say that this passage, in numerous instances of this passage, are actually predicting the sufferings of the Messiah. However, they just reject that the Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth. They say, no, the Messiah is not Jesus of Nazareth. We're looking for somebody else, not Jesus of Nazareth, to fulfill these things. Yet, it is about Jesus. And that's the testimony of the New Testament, quite clearly. And that's what we should believe, that Jesus came supernaturally, providentially, so that he might pay the penalty for our sins and three days later rise from the dead. Let's see how the passage describes him. And as we go through it, you will see that there is no way that any other individual in history or in the future could fulfill these words. Behold my servant, Isaiah 52, 13. Behold my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Behold, in the Old Testament especially, the word behold is not... Uh, frivolous or, or uh, a, a, a superimposed word, a word that is unnecessary. It is a word that calls attention. Something amazing is about to be said or done. And here, of course, it's explained that my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. God the Father is the speaker and God calls his own son my servant, my servant or my slave. Because the Son had come into the world to do the will of the Father. Not to do His own will, but to do the will of Him who sent Him. That's the declaration of Jesus throughout 
his ministry, especially in the book of John. He says it again and again. The Father sent me. He sent me. I was sent by the Father. He always talks about being sent to do the very will of the Father. And this will is to prosper, be high and lifted up, and greatly exalted. In this case, his great exaltation has to come first through suffering. You know, in John, John 12, 32 and 33, it says that if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. I will draw all to myself if I am lifted up. The cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ and everything that has to do with his glory is here signified as being high, lifted up, and greatly exalted. What we and the world consider to be foolishness, to be uh, ignoble, to die on a cross, to suffer torture and to be put to shame like that, to be spit upon and to have your head beaten with rods and to have people mock you, uh, soldiers mock you. In this way, this is not exaltation. That's not the way the world looks at it. That's not the way we look at it in our natural condition, but that's the way God looks at it. God takes the foolishness of the world and he turns it upside down. He takes, um, he takes his wisdom and he uh, contravenes and subverts the foolishness of the world. And this is the way he does it. And verse 14 says, Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. The people... Many people, the surrounding nations, were astonished and appalled to see the low condition, the humiliating condition of the Jewish people whenever they were enslaved and persecuted and exiled. They were. How could such a great nation, how could a nation that had so many blessings, such a rich land, a fertile land, and the blessings of God, they had the law of God, how could such a nation be overturned by wicked foreign enemies? And, and then become slaves and be miserable people. How could that happen to the Jewish people? Well, the same thing with Christ. So his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Christ, when he came, he did not come on a white horse. He did not come with a crown on his head. He did not come with lots of gold all over his body. He did not come in purple robes of royalty. He did not come with a kingdom that lasts forever. He did not come in his first coming that way. He came as an obscure man. He came as a regular man. He came as a common man. He was a carpenter or some sort of trade like that. That's the kind of profession he had. We would say today he was a blue-collar worker. That's the kind of person he was. He came from an obscure town, Nazareth, in a, in a despised region of the country in Galilee, where there were a few Jewish people, but mostly Gentilic people living there. And Galilee was despised by those who inhabited Jerusalem and Judea. They had territorial and regional animosity because of religious reasons, because of ethnic reasons. They had this uh, animosity. And Jesus was raised in Nazareth, that obscure little town. In fact, they said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? John chapter 1, nothing. And then his parents... What about his mother? 
Yes, his parents were from the lineage of David, but David's dynasty was in ruins. It was a disaster. There was no king on David's throne. That had, been, that had ceased for generations before. Yes, they were descendants of David, but who is David? Who, knew, who knows anything about David at that time except the Jewish people? So his parents were obscure and lowly people, despised. And then Jesus himself. Throughout his life, for the first 30 years, how many people knew about him? We only know about his incident when he was 12 years old at the temple. We only know about that. Otherwise, he was just brought up in Nazareth, as it says in Luke chapter 4. He was brought up there. He was brought up in obscurity for 30 years. 30 years. Probably he toiled and was a very laborious man, working hard, being faithful in his duties and job. So I'm sure that his complexion, uh, his, his uh, physique and all, was not very attractive. And then also, consider that he was despised by the people during his ministry. Yeah, there were crowds of people whenever miracles were happening, but generally speaking, the authorities despised him. Nobody liked him. And then when he was beaten, tortured, put on the cross, of course, by that point, he was completely marred, and nobody wanted to look on him brutality, atrocities committed against him. So who wants to look at bloody people dying in their death? Yeah, we like to see it in movies, but we don't like to see it in real life. That's the way he was. However, some good came out of it. Verse 15 begins, Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. When it says he will sprinkle many nations, there are at least three ways to look at it, and perhaps all of the above are true. In the Old Testament, the coming of the Holy Spirit is signified as sprinkling. And even the blood, the blood of some of the sacrifices were sprinkled, the animal sacrifices were sprinkled on the altar. And even the blood of the covenant was sprinkled on the book of the covenant, on the Bible itself, in the time of Moses. Um, And then thirdly, the sprinkling may signify the rain. Just as rain sprinkles, the the Bible is, and the Word of God is compared to rain in Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, verse 10, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth, he says. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without exceeding in the matter for which I sent it. It may be in all of the above ways that Christ sprinkles nations. He sprinkles nations and even kings. There are authorities all around the world from the New Testament onward who believed in the gospel. That's why it says in 1 Timothy 2, 1-7, to that we ought to pray for kings and all who are in authority, that we as Christians may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Well, the gospel spread at that time and throughout history and continues to spread to the authorities. And when the authorities, who do have the royal robes, who do have all the power, they have the mighty military, they have all the gold that they want, what are they going to do when they hear the gospel? If God changes them, by the Spirit, by the blood of Christ, 
and by the word of God. What will happen? They will shut their mouths. They will shut their mouths. They think they are tough and rough. They can issue a decree and everybody has to listen in their kingdom, right? But now, with the gospel, the gospel will humble them. And they will not be living for themselves anymore. They will live for Christ. Chapter 53. 53. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is now a question. It's a prayerful question to God the Father. That is, yes, Christ will come, and yes, the gospel will spread, and even, yes, kings will shut their mouths. They will see and they will understand. They will believe. But then, compared to all the people who hear, only a few actually believe, it says. That's the implication of the question. Who has believed our message? Who has believed? Very few. It says in John chapter 1, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. He came to his own nation, but his own nation, generally speaking, they rejected him. Only a few in that nation actually believed in him. So who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the the Lord is a symbol of the power of the Lord. To whom was this power revealed? Remember, the gospel, according to Romans 1, 16 and 17, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There, Paul puts these two concepts together just like Isaiah does right here. Our message is the message of the gospel, and the arm of the Lord is that powerful gospel that's able to change and transform people to make them from being dead creatures to living creatures, from being stony-hearted to tender-hearted. Very few people believe. Remember when Jesus rose from the dead? There were more than 500 brethren who saw him at one time, 1 Corinthians 15 says. Now, 500 is a big number. That's good. But why were, were there not tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands to witness his resurrection at one time? Weren't there tens of thousands of people following him from place to place whenever he fed them, whenever he provided uh, things for them, food like fish and bread? He fed the 5,000 plus women and children. He fed the 4,000 plus women and children. He healed the blind, the lame, the dead. He raised them from the dead. Why weren't there tens of thousands? And then on the day of Pentecost, when he told his disciples to wait, Why were there only 120 of them praying in the upper room in Acts chapter 1, waiting for the day of Pentecost? Why only 120? Because of this verse. Because God has said that throughout every generation, there will be many people who hear the gospel and many people who claim to believe it, but only few people who truly believe it and who truly have been changed by the power of the gospel. Only few. Verse 2, why is it that people don't believe? Verse 2, for or because he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Metaphorically speaking, Jesus was like a tender shoot or root out of parched ground. 
parched ground, you don't expect in dry ground for anything to grow there or anything of meaning or, or benefit to grow there. You don't expect anything that you really need to eat day by day for your nourishment to grow in the desert, right? Or in any other place where there is no water source, no water flow. So Jesus was like that. He came up as a tender shoot and root out of parched ground. Nobody expected it to happen that way. They expected it to happen with a lot of hoopla, with a lot of fanfare. That's what they expected. But he did not have any stately form or majesty. He had nothing, no beautiful garments, no uh, royal horses, no, no soldiers in front of him, behind him. He didn't have anything like that. He didn't have weapons of war, nothing that should attract our attention to pay attention to him. He didn't even have money. He, did, he was not dishing out money to everybody. He didn't have anything like that. He didn't have wealth and he didn't have power, nothing. He didn't even have beauty. That's why nobody paid attention. Isn't that the problem we have? Our eyes get dazzled easily, easily by colors, by show, by people who put on an appearance, people who have money, authority, a pedigree, degrees, correct? This is what happens. This is the way we are, who own lots of possessions or who own something that we would really love to own ourselves. But that's not the way Jesus was. And because he wasn't that way, who believed the message? Very few. In fact, what did they do? Verse 3, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. He was despised and forsaken of men. The people despised him and they forsook him. They did it in many ways. We know the religious officials did so in many ways. They plotted against him. They constantly did that and ultimately got their wish and got him put to death. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Did he not grieve over the, 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 the sinful, sorry state of the people at various times? He had compassion on the rich man, who, the rich young ruler who walked away because he owned much property and would not believe the gospel. It says he felt the love for him and said, go and sell all you have, give to the poor and come follow me. But he walked away. Didn't Jesus say, Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets and killed those who are sent to you? Didn't Jesus grieve in the Garden of Eden? I'm sorry, Garden of Gethsemane? Garden of Gethsemane, didn't he weep? Didn't he pray? Didn't he say, if it is your will, let this cup pass? Nevertheless, not... My will, but yours be done. Didn't Jesus say those things? He grieved. He knew. He, and then he, the, the prophet in verse 3 repeats it for the sake of emphasis. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Yes, he was truly despised. He shouldn't have been, but he was. And we did not esteem him. Don't forget that in these verses, it says, beginning in verse 2, Isaiah the prophet is speaking as a representative of all believers. Isaiah the prophet is speaking as a representative of all the believers. And he's saying that we did not esteem him. 
in the first century, even the believers did not give him the full estimation that Jesus deserved, the full faith that he deserved. They did not. They even scattered and, and fled when he was arrested in the garden, did they not? His disciples all fled. So this is the kind of treatment Jesus received even from his own believing, believing disciples. Everybody did this. They, they didn't esteem him. So what did he accomplish? What did Jesus accomplish by his death? Verse 4 says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Our griefs and our sorrows, he took them upon himself. He took upon everything that brings sin and evil into the world, explained here as our griefs and our sorrows, he bore them. He bore the penalty for them. Even though we did not understand. Even though it says we did not, uh, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. We thought, oh, the judgment of God fell on him. But he deserved it. What did he do? Criminals don't die just like that. Not generally speaking. Criminals die because they did something wrong. We initially thought, do we really need to believe that? Or wasn't it God who actually punished him for something through the Romans and the Jews? No. Verse 5 says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. No, that's not what happened. What happened was he was pierced and crushed and chastened and scourged for our transgressions, our iniquities, our peace, and our healing. That's called substitutionary atonement, a substitutionary death. He died when he did not deserve to die because he was sinless. As it says in verse 9, he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He was sinless, yet he died. We know that the penalty in the Bible is the wages of sin is death. So if he died, yet he was sinless, he did not die for his sins, he died for ours, which verse 5 says. Our transgressions, our iniquities, our peace, our healing. He died for us. Substitutionary death. This is important to note. The Bible constantly says, for our sins, or some such expression. Why? Because it's saying, in a nutshell, that he died in our place, in our stead, so that we do not go to hell, but go to heaven because we believe in him. Today and throughout the years, people have said, Jesus did not die for our sins. We have to work for our salvation. We have to do good as much as possible to go to heaven. Jesus did not die for our sins. People in Christianity have said that and outside of Christianity have said that, all rejecting the truth of this death. He died for our sins, if we believe. But they say, no, 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 he didn't die like that. He died just as a martyr 
or he died as a, an example of, of how God despises um, persecution or God despises violence. He just died as an example, or as a moral example. He died to show what it means to die a virtuous death. So he died as an example for us not to pay for our sins. We have to work for our own salvation. We can't believe in him, they say, because he just died as that. Or they say he died so that all of us can have economic equality. Economic equality. He died, that's Marxism or socialism, that he died for economic equality. In Christian theology, it's known as liberation theology. No, that's not why he died. He died to pay the penalty for our sins so that we not experience the wrath of God, the, the punishment of God inflicted upon us, thereby we go to hell. He delivered us from hell. That's why he died. Verse 6 continues, and Isaiah keeps speaking as one of the believers. He says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The iniquity of us all to fall on him. Isaiah, as the speaker of the believers, says we have gone astray like sheep and we have done our own way. We have turned to our own way. He's describing wayward people or sheep that don't do what's right and stay with the master or stay with the shepherd. They don't stay with the shepherd and they go headlong into danger where the wolves are. That's where they go. And they need to turn back. So what does God do when we behave like sheep waywardly? He causes the iniquity of us all. Us all, right? No unbeliever who never hears of Christ is praying like this. Jesus, I know you died for us all. No, only believers will say that. Only believers. This is describing the doctrine of limited atonement. Limited atonement or special atonement, definite atonement, effective atonement. Atonement means the meaning and application of the death of Christ. Why did Jesus die? For whose benefit did he die? Did he die so that every person and the devil and his demons, they all go to heaven? No, that's universalism. Did he die so that all good people of whatever religion, whether they know of Jesus or not, as long as they're good people, that they go to heaven? No, because they have to know about him, it says here. Cause the iniquity of us all to fall on him. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. They have to hear about him to be able to concede this, to believe like this. But that belief that good people go to heaven regardless of religion, that is called inclusivism. And that's also foreign to the Bible. It's not in the Bible at all. Not at all. But what is in the Bible is exclusivism. That is we have to hear specifically about who Jesus is and why he came into the world. And we must believe in him. And only those who believe in him will ever benefit from his death and even resurrection. Only those who believe will benefit in his death. 
So exclusivism and limited atonement, they go together. You cannot separate them. That's what the Bible teaches. <coughs> Verses 7 and following. He further describes his death. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus did not open his mouth just like lambs don't. He did not open his mouth because it was ordained for him to die. So when he died, he was not going to object. He was not going to kick and scream. He was not going to um, rise up in arms. He was not going to uh, rally the troops. He was not going to rally his disciples. He was not going to call for the two swords that he said in the garden, uh, get swords for yourselves. And they said, look, Lord, here's two swords. He didn't say, come use those two swords. He didn't say anything like that. He kept quiet because it was at that time, his hour had come to die. That's why he kept quiet. And during all of that, he was oppressed and afflicted. He did not deserve any of the mistreatment he received. Nothing. Nothing from the Romans, the Roman authorities, nothing from the Roman soldiers, nothing from the Jewish authorities, the Jewish religious leaders, nothing from Judas Iscariot, even the abandonment from his own disciples. He didn't deserve any of that. But he did it. And as well, verse 8, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. When Herod and Pilate and Caiaphas and Annas all of these officials put him on trial. They weren't seeking truth. They weren't trying to do the right thing. It was an oppressive judgment. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. It was a, it was a complete uh, overturn of justice. There was no justice whatsoever in what happened with his trials. And then it says, as for his generation, who considered that he was cut, out, cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? In his generation or offspring, during that time, who considered the real reason why he died? Now he's returning to that point he made in verse 1. P few people understood the real reason why he was cut off. He was executed. To be cut off means to be executed. Few people considered the real reason why he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. The transgression of my people. We deserved penalty, but he took our penalty. It was due upon us, but he took it upon himself. Verse 9. His grave was assigned to be with wicked men, yet with a rich man in his death. Assigned with wicked men. There were two robbers who were crucified on each side of Jesus. There were two. One of them eventually on the cross repented and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. One of them eventually repented, but both of them did crimes. They both sinned. They did not love God and they did not love their neighbor. They both did. They were wicked men, but not Jesus. Yet he was put right in the middle of them. 
And then it says, yet with a rich man in his death. Jesus did not own a tomb. There's no preparations for that. Yet there was a rich man who offered Joseph. Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph, he was a wealthy man and he owned a rock tomb. The wealthy could own a rock tomb. And he owned one of those tombs and he offered for the body of Jesus to be placed in his own tomb. His own tomb. That's how it happened that Jesus had some kind of honor and respect at his burial. Only because Joseph volunteered his tomb. Again, verse 9, although he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He did not do anything worthy of death. He committed no violence. He was not an, an insurrectionist or a murderer like Barabbas was, yet the people called for the release of Barabbas and called for Jesus to be crucified, shouting, crucify him, crucify him. He had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. There was no deceit in his mouth because there was no deceit in his heart. He had a pure heart, completely, 100% perfect, sinless, spotless heart. He had no sin whatsoever in his whole being, his whole nature. Why did all this happen? Up to this point, you, we might think that things are out of control. We might think that the Romans and the Jews and the mobs and Judas and everybody like that who conspired against him, that they had the upper hand and they, were, they knew what they were doing and they were doing it to uh, vanquish the plans of God. No. Verse 10. Not at all. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Who was pleased? The Lord was pleased to crush him, it says. God the Father was pleased to send his Son to pay for our sins. That means that this was not out of control. God was not helpless. God was not twiddling his thumbs. God was not losing sleep. He was not pacing back and forth in heaven. Nothing like that was happening. God ordained. He appointed for this to happen. And he was pleased to crush his only son, to put him to grief, that he might render himself a guilt offering, to pay for our guilt. It was placed on him. God was pleased to do this. That's why Jesus said, no one takes my life away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I take it up on my own initiative. This commandment I received from my Father. God, the Father, and the Son were in complete control of the death of Christ and even the Holy Spirit because it says in Romans 8 9, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, will He not give life to your mortal bodies? Yes. So the Spirit, the Son, and the Father were all ordaining to pay the penalty for our sins. And because he did so, he gave himself as a guilt offering, Jesus will see his offspring. As it says in Hebrews 2, 2, 12 and 13, Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. God has given me children, spiritual children, adopted children, 
So Jesus will see his children, his offspring. He will prolong his days. Yes, he's going to be crucified, but his days will be endless because this is predicting resurrection, ascension, um, intercession, second coming, everything, and the judgment to come and all eternity when we are with him because the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Whatever God pleases to do will be accomplished in and through his Son forever. It will prosper. Furthermore, verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. As a result of the anguish of his soul, because he died, he will see what is to come to see us and all of the benefits to come and be satisfied. He will be satisfied in what he has accomplished on our behalf because he paid for our sins. That's why it says in John 5 that God the Father has given all judgment to the Son because he is the Son of Man. The Son of Man is Son of Man because he had to come as a man of flesh and bones, incarnation. He has to live perfectly. He has to die for our sins, rise from the dead. And because he has accomplished those things for us, he is worthy to be the judge of the whole world and to see everything to fruition. Everything as he plans, he will see it and be satisfied. Jesus will. By his knowledge, Jesus was the one with perfect knowledge, the fear of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord, everything was upon him. And by his knowledge of the will of God, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He's called the righteous one because there's no wickedness in him. He's called my servant again, as he was in verse 13, 52, 13. And he will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Who is the justifier of the people who commit iniquities, but Jesus. Jesus is able to declare us righteous. That's what justification means. Justification does not mean we have an excuse to sin, but it means that though we are guilty of sin and worthy of punishment, God declares us righteous so that we escape the punishment of God. That's justification. Christ's righteousness, Christ's perfection is reckoned to us, given to us, so God looks at us in Christ and he doesn't look at our own sin. He forgives us of sin. He justifies us because he took upon his, uh, in his own body, our sins. He bore our iniquities. Verse 12, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong. Describing what happens in warfare. In warfare, when the soldiers invade and they conquer, they get as a part of their wages the spoil or the booty of their enemies, right? In warfare, whatever they discover, whatever they conquer, they are able to take whatever is there from the conquered country in order to be part of their wages in warfare. Assuming it's just warfare. And in this case, when Jesus is doing it, it is just warfare. And what will he do? Jesus will share the spoils of battle with us. He will share 
what he has conquered with us. All things are for us, the Bible says. God causes all things to work together for us, to those who love God. Jesus uh, has said of us that we will inherit the world to come. Enter into the joy of your master. These are the things Jesus says to welcome us into eternity. We will have an eternal kingdom. We will be reigning with Christ forever. If we suffer with him, we will reign with him. We will be glorified with him. That's what he's describing for us. Even though we don't deserve it, he'll give that to us. And how is it that everything is in his hands? Verse 12 concludes, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. How many times have we read so far that he died because he poured out himself to death? Because of his death, he is the only one worthy to have everything, to inherit the world. Because of his death, he's the only one worthy to inherit all things and also to distribute all things to us. He was numbered with the transgressors, which is a reiteration of 53 verse 9. His grave was assigned to be with wicked men. He was counted or numbered with these other transgressors who did deserve death, but he didn't deserve death. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and interceded for us. Jesus. He's the great intercessor because he came into the world to die for the world. He who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.